The story is told of a very wealthy fellow that had in his cellar a tremendous amount of wine. Very, very exquisite, expensive and rare wines. And every single time a guest used to come to the house, he would get his butler to go down to the cellar and pick him out the perfect wine for the guest that had arrived that day. And that's how it went on for many, many years. Until one point, something very interesting happened. And that was as follows. One day, a very important visitor came to this very wealthy man to sit down and have dinner. So, as you do, he asked the butler, please go down to the cellar and find me the perfect bottle of wine for my esteemed guest today. No, butler goes down. The man is waiting in excitement to see which bottle of wine my expert butler is going to bring up for this evening's meal. He's all excited. He told his guest, don't you worry, the wine that I have in my cellar beats any store you can imagine. The storage, it's just unbelievable. Everything is kept at exactly the right temperature. The amount of money that I've spent on this cellar to make sure it's exactly perfect is unbelievable. What happened was, he looked at his watch and he sees that the time is just ticking by. And, it, you know, five minutes turns into ten minutes, it turns into fifty minutes, it turns into twenty minutes. And the guy's starting to get a little bit funny. The guest is, like, wondering when his wine is coming. And the host is wondering, what, what on earth is my butler doing over there? What is he doing? He can't figure out, can it be this one, can it be that one? What's going on? So he says, look, a bit more patience, you never know. Maybe he had trouble with the key. I don't know. So he says, oh, wait a little bit longer. Let's say that. Half an hour, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, is that this is it. I can't take it anymore. What does he do? He goes down to the cellar. As he takes his steps down to the cellar, he starts to smell a very interesting smell. Wine. Wine. He smells, this is a very, not just wine, but he can actually smell the wine as if the bottles are all open. So this is weird, and he's going lower and lower down into the cellar to try and find what is going on over here, where is the butler. And the sight that meets him is just unbelievable. He sees that all the stops were taken out of all the barrels, some of the bottles of wine which contain the most unbelievable expensive wine have all been smashed. And you can't find the butler. There's thousands of dollars worth of wine that is completely wasted on the floor. His, his, his barrels of wine that are aging for years and years to turn into the most precious wine is falling onto the floor. Where's the butler? And he searches this part of the cellar, this part of the cellar, this part of the cellar. Where can this guy be in this, this part? Maybe he's in the window, maybe he's in the toilet. I don't know. He can't have fun. And eventually he comes to a little secluded part of the cellar. And when he sees the sight that meets him, he just cannot believe his eyes. He sees his butler sitting on, the t- on a nice, comfortable couch. His feet on the table like this, has a cigar. He's got a pina colada in his hand. And he looks at this uh, the butler of his, and he's, he's about to kill him. And the butler looks up with him with a nice face and says to him, Hi, boss, can I have a raise? He's going to kill him! The boy sigh. Every single Rosh Hashanah. What do we do? Exactly the same. The whole year, we're sitting on our lazy couch with our cigar and our pina colada in our hand, having a great time. Comes Rosh Hashanah. What do we say? God, give me a raise. I want money. I want this. I want this. I want that. I want everything. What have we been doing? The boss comes in to say, hey, what's going on over here? My boy's side. 
I'd like to introduce you to something called Elul. Elul! We hear all this often talk about Elul this and Elul that. What is this Elul? There's a certain preparation time that we need to prepare before we get to Rosh Hashanah. There was a very interesting Misa that took place a number of years ago. It actually came in front of a Choshevah Choshevah Rov called Rabbi Lezim Mamitz, the Heilige Yireim. And the Misa came as follows. A fellow bought a barrel of tar. A barrel of tar to tar his roof from leaks, from whatever it is. He bought a beautiful big barrel of tar. And then he decides, you know what? I don't need to go along and tar my roof. I'm going to sell it on. He finds another Jew who also wants to tar his roof. So he says, you know what? I've got a great idea. I'll sell you my barrel of tar. So he sells him his barrel of tar. The Jew opens it up and lo and behold, he finds that in this chest, in this barrel that was supposedly tar, was full of money. Completely, completely full of cash. And he tells the original seller, do you know what I found in the barrel that you sold me? I found, you can't imagine how much money I found. So the guy says to him, hey, that's my money. He said, what do you mean? But, but I bought that barrel from you. Yeah, but I didn't want to sell you that. I wanted to sell you top. I didn't want to sell you money. So they started, went to the road, as you do. You go to the road. They went to the road, to the side of the shire. And the road was deciding this way and that one. This was the Uraim, one of the greatest postkin that we had hundreds of years ago. And the Uraim decided that the actual money, the barrel that had all the money, belonged to the second Jew. And he explained it as follows. And he says like this, If you don't know what you have, then you can't, doesn't belong to you. This fellow that had a barrel of money, thinking it was taught, it never belonged to him, and therefore belonged to the second person. There are certain times, there are certain situations, if we don't appreciate and we don't realize what these times are, then we don't get them, and we don't gain the full experience, and we don't actually accomplish anything during that time. The month of El is a tremendous month that was given to us as a present from the Rebbeinu Shalom to accomplish tremendous things. And I want to explain to you what exactly are we meant to be thinking during Elul. Where are we meant to be doing? You know, a fellow, this is a true story. A rabbi turned around one time by the Slichas, a couple of days before Rosh Hashanah, and the, uh, one of his congregants in the shul was doing a very interesting custom, a very interesting minute. Instead of what the normal people do when it comes to Vidur, Shamnu, Bagadnu, you know, knocking down the chest, left-handed, right-handed, whatever you are, this guy had both fists and he was pounding like Tarzan. Mama's unbelievable. The rabbi calls him after and says, where do you get such an interesting custom from? I've just never seen that before. Everybody does it with one hand. You do it with two hands. Where do you get that from? He says, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> it's not my custom at all. I just came late. And therefore, to make up for lost time, I figured if I do it with both hands, I can get there quicker. I can finish the job much quicker. What's the point? He has no idea what he's doing. If you don't prepare yourself, how can you have an understanding to what you're going to do? You know, the Gerebbe once used to tell over the following marshal during El, and he said, you know how it goes in Ger, many different Hasidus is that the rabbi stands and sits in a certain place, and all the Hasidim, hundreds and thousands, pass in front of him, and the rabbi says, a good job, it's a good job, it's a good whatever it is. So he said there was a certain chassid of the Rebbe. And he had a bit of a problem with his speech. He couldn't speak so well. It took him time to articulate the words. And then he got to his Rebbe. He was waiting online and waiting online. And finally got to his turn. And he got to the Rebbe and he saw. He was face to face with the Rebbe. Uh, 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 
it just couldn't, it just, it just couldn't speak. It's just, next, and off he went to the next one. So they said to him afterwards, you know what you have to do? A very simple thing. Why don't you start speaking before you get to the Rebbe? Then by the time you get to the Rebbe, you'll already start speaking. If we would sit here and enjoy life, and then Rosh Hashanah would come, all of a sudden Rosh Hashanah were asking, pleading, begging for our lives. You can't wait till Rosh Hashanah to do that. It's too late. You need to prepare. If you don't prepare, how do you expect to come to Rosh Hashanah with any feeling whatsoever? You know how many people complain? You know, I had people that complained to me when it came to Tisha B'Av, right? Come to Tisha B'Av, people like, Tisha B'Av, we sit on the floor, anybody cries? Anybody like sobs? You know, in the olden days, they, push, they, they, they would cry tears. Everyone knows the beginning of the, the art scroll on, on, on the, on the uh, Tisha B'Av Kinnis. It brings over there from the Chassam Soifa. That the Chassam Soifa by the uh, Sudam of Sekes would dip his bread into all the tears that he cried during the last couple of hours. We don't, we don't even understand what that means. We're not holding on that madriga. But at least one thing. We have to use the next four weeks to prepare for something called Rosh Hashanah. And I want to make sure that you guys are the most prepared as you'll ever be. When, when, before we get into that, just to explain to you what an Elul means. Right? What does an Elul mean? There's a Ramban, a very interesting Ramban. The Ramban, when he writes about Chodesh Elul, says, There is a special closeness of the Rebbeinu Shalom to Klal Yisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so close to us. We just have to reach out and then we get him. And it's interesting because he actually brings down the Maral says in the Chuvas and Simon Lam and Gimel, he says a very interesting thing. We know that often we make Kiddush early. Right? Some of us on Shabbos we make Kiddush early. This time, don't make Rosh Hashanah early. Which means don't make Kiddush too early. Why? Simple reason. You're losing out on a few moments of Elo. That's it. You can imagine, why not? I want to begin Rosh Hashanah early. I want to daven early and bring Kiddush early so I can have a good night's sleep. And then daven talk. No, no, no. Don't make Kiddush early. I'm not talking about Halacha right now. But the assertion is, don't make Kiddush early because those few moments of Elo, those few moments of where we're holding right now, every moment of Elo is so precious. We have to understand why it's precious. In fact, the Hasidish is far right. Balatanya writes, why he doesn't understand why these days are not a Yontif. We should be singing and happy and joined. There's a Gavaldigan Yontif going on that Akadosh Baruch is going to have a Rosh Hashanah and Akadosh Baruch is going to give us another life and Akadosh Baruch is going to give us all great times. The Satmarov used to cry when he used to discuss the famous Moshe that all the Hasidish is throwing bring down. And that is, you have a fellow in the village and he wants to have a request given to the king and he sends letter after letter after letter to the king and not one of them get there. And he asks someone finally he finds that's close to the king. He says, tell me, I sent letter after letter, please. Why can't, he, why can't the king respond to me on one of his subjects of where he lives? Why is it that he's not answering me? So he said, listen, I'll be telling you the truth. Before he even gets to the king, I throw it in the garbage. There's only one way of giving a letter to the king, and that is giving it to, yourself, giving it to him yourself. He said, what am I going to do that? I'm not even allowed anywhere near the place. One time, a couple of months later, there was a time that the king decided to stroll the area of the city that he ruled over and meet with the commoners. And he said that was his perfect opportunity. And he went right over to the king and he gave him the letter. The king looked at it and told him, no problem, I'll look into it. Zukta Satmirov and all the Hasidic Shishorim spoke about this. Amazing. This is Elo, right now. During the year, we have to double, we have to beg, and obviously, Hakadosh Baruch Hu listens to us. But now, in the next four weeks, Hakadosh Baruch Hu is kiilu kaviyachol, strolling the streets. You just have to go up to him and ask him. You just have to try. 
and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so close. That's how amazing it actually is. The Muslims will bring down the following marshal. They said, imagine if a person is walking in the forest and he gets to a huge pit and inside this pit, in the bottom of the pit are these lions that are ready to devour any human being. They're ready to rip someone to pieces. And he by mistake goes closer and closer and closer and he falls down. As he's falling, he reaches up and he gets a hold of a clump of earth. And that is what's holding him from falling down into these lions that would eat him alive. All of a sudden, an animal comes along, a small animal, and starts nibbling away at the clump. Until eventually the clump falls away and he goes inside. And they bring this muscle that the whole year we're clinging on to a clump of earth for our dear lives to see whether we'll survive or not. Elul is the opportunity that you have to try and figure out why are you on this world? What were you put onto this planet for? And it's something that I think we have to invest a little bit of time into. You know, there was a famous, there was a soldier in the Tsar's army, Tsar Nikolai, and there was a, one of the people over there in the, in the village was drunk, right? a side that you don't get to see, Baruch Hashem, too often. He was sitting on the floor, rolling around, completely lost it, completely drunk. Soldier went up to him and said, excuse me, tell me your name. And he was drunk, he was laughing, he didn't listen to him. Tell me your name, I'm giving you an order. Ah, he was drunk, laughing, this is great, this stuff, nah. That's it, he picked him up, handcuffed him and took him to prison. He went in front of the judge, and the judge said to him, you didn't listen to orders? He said, what do you mean, but I was drunk. He should have known that I was drunk. And he shouldn't have gone and asked me all these questions. He said to him, no, 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 no. That was a soldier from Tsar's army. If that happens to you, you wake up immediately from your drunkness and you respond. The whole year, we're drunk. Bushes, we're drunk. We're walking around. Everything is great. Everything. We don't even think twice about what we're doing, why we're doing it, where we're going, who we're seeing, what we're saying, what we're looking at. Ah, nafkamina. All of a sudden, Elul comes. And on that first day of Elul Shachas, we heard that shofar. And that shofar means, Rabbi Isa, you've got 30 days for Rosh Hashanah. That's it. And that's your opportunity. However drunk you are, you've got to wake up. And you've got to figure out how to make yourself better in time for Rosh Hashanah when you plead for your life. But I want to mention a thought about Elul to explain. You know, Elul in the olden days was a whole different mahalach. You know, let me just tell you a little bit about uh, maybe 30, 40 years ago, maybe a little bit more. When they used to say Elul, right? When's the first time they say Elul? And they say, You know, when they did that in Europe, you know what happened? There were women who were sitting or standing in the Ezra's Noshim that fainted. They pushed it, fainted. They heard the word Elul, they pushed it on the floor, out cold. The word Elul! You know, they say in the sperm that the, that the fish are shivering when it comes to Elul. There was a story in Europe of a couple of boys that were fighting on the streets in Europe. And they were fighting a whole fist fight. They weren't wearing yarmulkes, I don't know if they were from. And they were fighting. And a woman opens the, door, opens the window from her second floor and she sees the fight and she says to him, she says to him, it's Elul! And they stop. They stop and they went their ways. They weren't even wearing a cup. No yarmulke. But they heard the word Elul? Forget about it. It was a whole different world. It was a whole different thing. Elul used to mean something. Now, obviously, we can't live like that. That's not how we were brought up. That's not what is expected of us. But one thing is expected of us, and this is really was an introduction. This is what I want to speak about. And that is, what are we meant to be doing on Elul? What are we meant to be accomplishing so when we come to Rosh Hashanah, 
we can actually understand what we're asking for. And we can say to our God, please, we want a good life and we have a right to ask a good life. And that is, I believe that Elul has to be like a dream. A dream. That means, no pachad, no worry, don't worry too much, shouldn't be too nervous. A dream. Dream about what you want to be. Dream about what you could be. And then try and get there. That's what El's meant to be. Not fake. Not trying to do things and take on extra things. But an El is to dream about where you could be and what you could become. I want to speak a, mo- a moment about life. 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 Something worth speaking about. Every business have a meeting about the business. Let's have a speak a little bit of a meeting about life itself. Is life really that important? Is it? Is it so important? It's interesting. Everybody knows that there's loads of interesting things that are said about Elul. Anivadoidivadoidili. All these sorts of uh, Rashi Tevis for Elul. The Arizal brings down a very interesting uh, posuk as the Rashi Tevis for Elul. And he says as follows. It's a posuk in Mishpatim. Shom. We know the halacha, that if a person kills somebody else unintentionally, right, by mistake, not not completely by mistake, but unintentionally, where does he go? Ari Miklot. Got to go to Golas. Got to go to Ari Miklot. Everybody knows that. Marcus, everybody knows that halacha. Everybody knows that Gemara. What's in that? First of all, what's it going to do with Elo? That's the big thing. Very interesting, right? The words, Enel Yodoi. Enel Yodoi, the something the Mokim spell Elo. What's the connection? What's the connection between Ori Miklot and Elo? So I want to tell you like this. When you kill somebody else, what does that mean? If it was a complete accident, you don't go to Ori Miklot. Complete accident, it's not my fault, what can I do? When do you go to Goddess? When do you go to Ori Miklot? When you are negligent. What does negligent mean? You should have been more careful and you were not more careful. Now let me ask you, what type of person, what type of person could have been more careful with life and wasn't? Somebody that doesn't view life as being important. If you viewed life as being important, you wouldn't be negligent. You wouldn't have a negligence to go and kill somebody else. If you viewed life as important, then you would be so careful to make sure such a thing never happens. And if it never happens, it is an accident. You don't go to Golis. From the very fact that you go to Golis means that you don't regard life to be that important. So the question is... Is life really important? It's a temporary life. We're only here for a little bit of time. Is it that important or not? This is something I think we have to think about during El. There's two Mishnayis in Ovis. In Perukiyovis there are two interesting Mishnayis that seem to conflict one to the other. And it's a tremendous yesoy for us to remember for the rest of our lives. And that is as follows. One Mishnah seems to say that this world is more important. Another Mishnah says... The next world is more important. What's right? Who's right? For example, let me tell you. One Mishnah says, You know what that means? You know what means? It's better to have one moment of You know what means? means, imagine if you're walking past, I think what Desla says over this marshal, imagine if a person is walking past a chasen hall and they're baking the most unbelievable foods and baked goods and everything over there. And he walks past, he's not a guest, he's not having anything to eat. And he gets a whiff of that amazing smell from the making from that dinner. And he says, wow, what a smell. That moment in the next world 
is better than all of the pleasure that a person can have in this world put together. That means what I said, listen to this. Imagine all the pleasure from Olamarishan all the way down, thousands of years later, till the end of time. Take every pleasure of every person, every person that had a baby, every person that got married, every person that got engaged, every person that did a good business deal, every simcha, every happiness that a person had, put it into one capsule, to one pill. That's a really happy pill. And that is the happiness that occurred from the beginning of time till the end of time. Says the Mishnah, one moment in Olam Habba is better than all of that. What does that mean? That means the Mishnah is telling me that the next world is more important than this world. Okay. Comes along the next Mishnah. This is a very interesting thing. Says the next Mishnah, That means what? This world is more important. How do we reconcile? Especially when they were written by the same person. How do we do this? Must be, must be, but it depends how you look at life. It depends how you view life, and that will depend on whether or not this world is more important, or the next world is more important. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you offhand, who do you think views this world as more important? A secular person who keeps absolutely nothing, believes in absolutely nothing, or a religious person, a firm person, who would you say views this world as being much more important? What would you say? The secular person. Obviously, you know why? He doesn't believe in the next world. For him, there is only this world. There's this world and it's all over. We believe that there's a next world and we're working towards that. The answer is it's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite is true. Really, he'll enjoy his life and have a happy life and he'll enjoy himself. But no, no, there's no way that they take it more important than what we take it. Because we believe that this world is a means to it. We're getting somewhere. It's not over. Now, there's a, there was a t-shirt they once printed in America. And it said, the one that gets the most toys when he dies, wins. Now, I don't say what exactly he wins. But he wins. Now, what does that mean? They view life. What is life to them? It's basically live, get born accumulate toys, whatever those toys may be, when your kids, they're toys, when your older kids, then they're phones, and when your older kids, they're cars, and eventually it gets more and more and more according to the age that you are, and then done! That's it! But then you win! There was a woman in Miami that actually got buried in her Rolls Royce. That was it, that was her life. Because she accumulated the most amount of toys. So for them, they're looking at life as, how many toys can you get? How much fun can you have? You're born, have a great time, and then you die. That's it. It's very sad. But listen to the following marshal. There was a fellow, not a true story, not a true story, Baruch Hashem. There was a man waiting for his wife to have a baby. So he waits outside the delivery room, and he waits for the doctor to come out with the good news. And the doctor comes out, and he says to the father, I'm sorry to tell you, I have terrible news. So what can it be? He said, your son, uh, you, your wife had a baby, but unfortunately, your baby contracted a terrible disease. A terrible disease that he will 100% die from this disease. The father was shocked. What do you mean? Doctor, you must give me some hope. Tell me, is there a cure? Doctor says, cure? No. Are you looking for a cure? Nah, we gave up years ago. But, 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 but how can it be such a thing? 
Did anybody ever survive this disease? No, nobody in medical history ever, dis- ever uh, survived this disease. He says to him, I don't understand. What type of illness is this? I've never heard such a thing before. There's no cure. You're not even looking for a cure. And nobody ever survived. I've never heard such a serious illness. He says, let me tell you, the doctor says, your child contracted upon birth a disease called life. Now, we don't know how long it will take, but he will die from this. Some people take it for 90 90 years, some people 80, some 70, some 102. We don't know how long it will be, but he will die from this disease. If that's how you look at life, as a time clock, that the minute you get born, they have this digital camera in heaven over there, and they flick the switch, he's born, bang! And these letters go on according to the amount of seconds that you are meant to be on this world and calculate exactly how many seconds you are in this world and the countdown starts when you're born, ends when you die. If that's how you look at life, then all you're looking at is as accumulation of toys and therefore you're living only to die. If that's what you're looking, then you start dying from the moment you already get born. It's interesting, they bring down from Esau. Esau said... In the Prasik over there, I'm going to die. How old was he? 15 years old. 15 year old child. He's looking about dying. Where did you get such a thing? So he said the answer is he was a Russia. And a Russia views his whole life as I'm living and eventually I will die. It just depends how much fun I have in the middle. And that's how they view life. We view life differently. We don't view life as we're here until we die. We're here to build our Olam Habba. We are Neshamas. By the way, just, just, just to break the idea over here, a lot of people think that really we're a body, and there's this like ghost inside of us, that's like a really called a Neshama, he's floating around us like Casper, whatever, trying to, you know, I don't know what, right? Not true. That you are actually a Neshama. And your Neshama in Shomayim had a beautiful life, and survived, and lived, and could see, and could hear, and everything great. However, when you came down to the physical world, you needed a goof. You need a physical goof. And that's the physical goof that you have right now. Like an astronaut. You ever saw an astronaut? He, need, he lives very nicely in this world, right? When he goes up to space, what does he need? He needs a space suit. He needs to breathe. He needs a radio to speak. He can't do everything normally. When he comes back down, what does he do? He takes off his space suit and continues living. We believe that eventually, whenever we are, you do leave this world, we take off our spacesuit, our bodies, and we're still left with our neshama. That means for every moment that we're living in this world, we're living in order to build. Every moment that we hear, every word of Torah that we say, every davening that we do, every bracha that we say, every parent feeling that we put on every morning, titters, that every single thing has eternal rewards that is forever and forever and forever. And every second that you do it in this world, you are gaining and you're building. You know, people think that you're living in this world, you get tokens, right? You get like tokens. Every time we do a mitzvah, I'll give you a token. You get the Shemaim, cash in! Off you go, go spend your tokens, right? No! You're building your own mabot. What you're doing here, every mitzvah, every word of Torah, every tzitzis, every tzvillin, every brocha, every asher yotza, do you know what it is? You're building your own oil mabot. When you look at it that way, then you realize that the quality of life is not based on your health situation. You know, in the hospital, how do they judge if we should pull the plug from somebody? Very simple. Look, judge's quality of life. See whether or not he's got loads of, loads of years to live, how healthy he is, if he's very healthy and he's young, oh, so we'll keep him in. If not, ah, get rid of him. Quality of life. 
We don't believe that way. A person can be koina oilomoy b'sho'achas. A person in one moment, even if he's brain dead, will keep him alive because we believe in that one moment that he's here. He can have a hero of tshuva. He can say, HaKadosh Baruch, I want to come closer to you. I want to be a better person. And that moment he gains tshuva that will continue him for the rest of his life. And that is something that we have to realize in a tremendous way. I want to say a couple of stories. And the story is like this. There was a story, just to appreciate a little bit about life. There was a very, very Chosovarov in Europe, in Radin, called Rav Naftali Trop. He was known sometimes as the Granat. And very, very Chosovar, Rosh Hashiva actually, at the time of the Chobetz Chaim. And his Talmidim loved him dearly. And at one point he became sick. He became sick to an extent that the Talmidim thought that he might die. And they decided to take upon themselves something interesting. And that is they donated their own life to him. Meaning, meaning, they gave up their own minutes in order to get, make him live. And each one pledged, this one pledged two days, this one pledged five days, this one pledged a half a day, whatever it was, each one gave his pledge to his Rebbe to give him life. And that's what he did. They came to the Chofetz Chaim. And they said, Rebbe, look what we're doing for the Rosh Hashiva. Rebbe Naftali Trop, we're trying to add on time to his life by donating some of our lives. We'd like you to do the same. And the Chovetz Chaim went into thought and thought and thought and thought to think, Lamaisa, how much money, how much time can he give? And he said, okay, I have a decision. I am willing to give one minute of my time. And they couldn't believe it, Rebbe, we've given days. One minute, and they walked away. And at that moment, they realized they realized how important the Chofetz Chaim understands this world. He understands that every single moment, every minute is so precious. Right? A person can go along and say a word of Torah, a person can do Natilis Yadayim, a person can put on tzitzis, a person can put on tzitzis, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at it with such an amazing look that we don't even realize how much HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves us, especially in the time of Elul. When in the time of Elul, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is looking so much closer. Every mitzvah, every Torah, everything we do is so, brings us closer and closer to the Rebbein Yishalaylam. And it's such a tremendous thing. You know, a rabbi was once walking past a church and he sees a from, well, sort of from woman walking out the church. And he says to her, you know, what are you doing there? She says, Rabbi, you just don't understand. It was unbelievable. I've never had experience like that before. It's called confession. Confession. You get there and go over there. And you get to confess to the priest all of your sins. And that's it. He says, you're forgiven. He said, she said, such a thing you've never experienced. It was absolutely unbelievable. He says, you know, we also have such a thing. We have vidoy, we have tshuva. We have also a similar process to that in our from religion. She says, Rabbi, you don't understand. Over there inside the church, there's actually somebody listening. And the rabbi turns and says, that's very sad. Because the person that's listening when we speak actually has the ability to do something. And he didn't understand that. You know, a woman can't understand that. There's actually somebody listening. We have to realize that like, oh, in these times is so close to us. He's waiting. I want to tell you a good story. This is a great story, this one. The phone call is a dreaded phone call for any parent. And unfortunately, a true story that one of the parents got a phone call at 3.12 a.m. He looks at the clock and he sees that his cell phone is ringing and ringing and ringing. 
he quickly gets his glasses and he picks up the phone and he says, what is this? And they asked him, is this Mr. So-and-so? He said, yes. He said, um, this is calling from the hospital. You have to come here immediately. Your child has been in a very serious accident. And you can imagine the shock at the time. Where is he holding? What's he doing? What happened? What happened? He quickly gets dressed. His wife gets dressed. And off they go to the hospital to see what's going on. 19-year-old boy. His life was hanging on like a thread. They had a 25-minute drive to the hospital. It looked like it took hours. You can imagine how long it took when they were waiting to see what happened. And they get inside and they see that his whole brain has been wired up to different machines to try and monitor what's going on. And they see that there's bleeding inside the brain. There's very little chance of survival. And if it's survival, we're talking about a life of in hospital for the rest of his life. And the parents are devastated, absolutely devastated. So much so that the weeks and weeks of being in the hospital after this terrible accident happened, the doctor said to him, I'm terribly sorry, but your son is showing absolutely no signs of life. He hasn't opened his eyes. He hasn't even moved for the last couple of weeks. If he doesn't do anything in the next couple of days, we're going to have to pull the plug. We're going to have to pull the plug. This is the policy in the hospital. This is the law in the country. There's nothing that we can do about it. I'm terribly sorry. And you can imagine the parents at that time are about to lose their son. And they sit by his bedside day and night waiting. Please move. Open. Do something. Do something to show that there's some, li- some life inside you that will keep you on the machine. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And they kept on wishing. and kept on waiting. Until the day came. That the hospital said, I'm sorry to tell you, this is the day. If nothing happens on this day, we're going to have to pull the plug. And each member of family went over in order to say their goodbyes. And told them how much they'll miss him, how much they love him, one by one. And then it was the time for the parents. The parents came in and the father sits there and he says to his son, Listen here, there's one hour left. Just one hour. Please squeeze my hand. Just squeeze it. Show me there's some life and I'll keep you on the hospital, the machine, and you'll have a good life and everyone will be okay. And he waits for that so little tiny, 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 tiny squeeze. And he doesn't feel it. And he's getting sad because he looked at the clock, the minutes are ticking by. And he says, please, just squeeze, just squeeze. And as he's about to leave go, the doctors are waiting to come inside. He feels it. A very, very slight grasp of the hand that he was about to let go of suddenly gave him a little bit of a tug and he felt some signs of life two months later he was able to leave the hospital eventually going back home HaKadosh Baruch who sits in Shomayim looks at each of us and says please just tell me you want to come back tell me you want to be a little bit better Tell me you want to try to daven. Tell me you want to try to be a better person. Be careful what you look at. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you hear. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to give a little bit of a clench. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is waiting, screaming in Shammai, when are you going to give that little tug? Not until it's too late. Now, Boisai, Rosh Hashanah is in four weeks. We have four weeks of preparation to realize of our time is so precious on this world. Every moment we can accomplish worlds of accomplishment. If we put our mind to it, we can do some tremendous things. 
Be'ez Hashem, Rabbi Sai, giving all your bracha, you should have a gewaldige elel, you should use your time. Baruch Hashem, you've come to a gewaldige yeshiva, where there's amazing uh, opportunities here for every person to grow in his own personal way. Every single person should take it seriously. So that when you come to Rosh Hashanah, and you say to HaKadosh Baruch, HaKadosh Baruch I want to live another year. And Hashem says to you, really? What type of life do you define as life? And if you say to Gosh you know what? I'm trying the best that I can. Not more, but the best that I can. I try, I do. Then HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at what you did during Elul and says, okay, we'll give you Be'ez Hashem a Gewaldige year with health, with happiness, with Parnasa, with all the brachas that a person would wish on himself. Thank you for joining us tonight, Be'ez Hashem, Rabbi Sai. Join us again tomorrow night at 9.30. Right.